The following is an Aspen Mind, Body, and Spirit podcast. Hello, my name is Nicholas Vizi. Welcome to Aspen's first Mind, Body, and Spirit podcast, sponsored by the Aspen Chapel and Explore Booksellers of East Main Street, Aspen. In a town known for beauty, sport, hospitality, and excellence, This podcast aims to give you a slice of what's going on in Aspen's mind, body and spirit world, to put a thoughtful inner context around all that goes on outside. In this edition, three times Pulitzer winner and author Thomas Friedman on his new book, Thank You for Being Late, local activist, philanthropist and founder of the Aspen Yoga Society, Gina Murdoch, and meditation guru, Cynthia Bourgeau on the need to stop in this hectic life. And that provides a theme that goes right through this podcast, the need to stop and consider before acting. Viktor Frankl, the neurologist and Holocaust survivor, said that between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. I'll repeat that because it's worth hearing. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. In these three interviews, we'll be looking at that space. First, Thomas Friedman, best-selling author, New York Times columnist, and three times winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Thomas lives part of his time in Aspen, and he came in to explore booksellers and spoke to Ellie Scott about his latest book, Thank You for Being Late. Ellie began by asking him how the title came about. Well, the title actually comes from meeting people for breakfast in Washington, D.C., where I live, and every once in a while someone comes 10, 15, 20 minutes late, and um, and they would say, Tom, I'm really sorry, it's the weather, the traffic, the subway, the dog ate my homework, and uh, one day, about three years ago, um, to one of them, I simply spontaneously said, actually, Ellie, thank you for being late. Because you were late, I've been eavesdropping on their conversation. Fascinating. I've been people watching the lobby. Fantastic. And most of all, I just connected two ideas I've been struggling with for a month. So thank you for being late. Well, people started to get into it. They'd say, well, well, well you're welcome. Because they understood that I was giving them permission to pause, to slow down, to reflect. In fact, my favorite quote in the beginning of the book is from my friend Dove Seidman, who says, when you press the pause button on a computer, it stops. But when you press the pause button on a human being, it starts. It starts to reflect, to rethink, to reimagine. And boy, don't we need to do a lot of that now in what I call the age of acceleration. So what is this age of acceleration? My argument is that the world is not just changing, it's being reshaped by three nonlinear accelerations all at the same time with the three largest forces on the planet, which I call the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. So Moore's Law, coined by Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel, 1965, posited that the speed and power of microchips would double every 24 months. It's actually held up for 52 years. That's a proxy for technology. If you put it on a graph, it looks like a big hockey stick. uh, The market for me is globalization. That's digital globalization. Everything is now being digitized and globalized, just like this podcast. Mm -hmm. If you put it on a graph, it looks like a hockey stick. And Mother Nature for me is climate change, biodiversity loss, 
and population growth. If you put it on a graph, it looks like a hockey stick. We're in the middle of three hockey stick accelerations all at the same time with the three largest forces on the planet. And they're all interacting with each other. More Moore's law, more technology drives more globalization. More globalization drives more climate change and potentially more solutions. And these three accelerations are reshaping our world. And the essential argument of the book is about what's driving these accelerations, how they're reshaping the world, and why the right answer for that is building community where people can come together, uh, adapt to these changes, and feel connected, protected, and respected. Well, thank you. Um, what I love about your book is that it makes technological language very accessible. Um, and so, for example, you discuss artificial intelligence and microchips. You explain Moore's Law, which I think is very interesting. <laughs> and um, all of it makes sense to a person like me who has a almost no technological background whatsoever. Um, More importantly, it makes sense to me who has no technological yeah. <laughs> background. <laughs> right. Um, and yet your writing is full of wisdom about the, the depth of human beings. And um, so I assume that's where your optimism comes from. Uh, can you talk about that? Well, my optimism um, comes from the fact that I, uh, I grew up in a healthy community um, in a town slash suburb outside of Minneapolis uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So I actually saw a community get built, uh, a pluralistic community. Um, uh, not as diverse as communities are today, but in its own way back then. And um, uh, it propelled me into the world. I, I grew up in the same neighborhood, uh, town, went roughly the same high school and, and uh, Hebrew school with the Cohn brothers, Al Franken, Norm Ornstein, Michael Sandel, Peggy Ornstein, Alan Wiseman, all these authors. We all really grew up in, and went to the same school at the same time, rough, roughly in that period, uh, or in the same town. And um, this wasn't a neighborhood in the Upper West Side of New York. This was a little one high school town in Minnesota that we all came out of. And, um, uh, and it all propelled us in a certain way to want to engage with the world, to bring a certain civic sensibility to it, each in a different way. And um, so if you had grown up in the time and place I did, you'd be an optimist too. And you'd want to understand what was the source of that optimism, what built that inclusive community. And how can I share it with others? And that's in part what the last part of the book is about. In the book, you call attention to the year 2007 in particular, um, and which is actually the year I graduated college. And, um, <laughs> but you describe it as a watershed year, and you compare this moment in history to a Gutenberg moment, uh, where things for humanity have just shifted fundamentally. So I'm going to borrow the chapter ahead of your chapter two. What the hell happened in 2007? Um, but what happened was the iPhone came out in 2007, uh, beginning a process by which we're putting into the hands of everyone on the planet uh, a very powerful computer connected to the Internet. Um, but that's not all. Uh, in 2007, a, a software platform called Hadoop was launched. Um, and Hadoop really is the foundation for big data. Um, in the same year... Um, uh, a program uh, called GitHub was started. Uh, it's now the world's biggest open source repository of software. In 2007, Facebook uh, opened itself to anyone with a registered email address. It broke out of high schools and universities and went global. In 2007, a company called Twitter launched on its own independent platform and went global. Uh, in 2007, um, uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, uh, gave us the world's first ebook reader, the Kindle. Uh, in 2007, Google bought YouTube. In 2007, Google uh, launched into the wild an operating system called Android 
2007, IBM started the world's first cognitive computer called Watson. In 2007, three design students in San Francisco um, uh, who uh, uh, were attending the Global Design Conference there decided that um, uh, there were enough people who couldn't get hotel rooms that they would rent out their spare air mattresses. And uh, it worked out so well for them, they started Airbnb. Uh, in 2007, the cloud was launched. Um, uh, in 2007, solar energy took off. In 2007, fracking began. In 2007, the price of sequencing the human genome collapsed. And in 2007, Intel, for the first time, went off silicon to extend Moore's law. They introduced non-silicon materials into their transistors. Uh, it turns out 2007 may have been, in time, we'll only understand, uh, the single greatest technological inflection point since Gutenberg. And we completely missed it because of 2008. Uh, So right when we hit this incredible uh, inflection point where our physical technologies just leapt ahead, uh, a year later, all our social technologies, the adapting, the political reform, the regulatory reform, you needed for that really slowed down, in some cases froze, because we suddenly went into the deepest recession since the 1929 depression. And so in in that mismatch, a lot of people got dislocated. And um, I, I explain how and why that happened. No, it's very interesting. I, I'm a millennial, technically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm on the older end of the millennial yeah. generation. But yeah. even I feel so dislocated. And it just in this postmodern world, right. that I, I almost feel like sometimes, uh, you know, I just can't, I can't even bother. I, yeah. I want to drop out. <laughs> well, that's part of what actually inspired me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really not uh, a Twitter user. You'll see my, New York Times tweets myself, but... Um, I'm not on Facebook. I don't look for my Facebook page. Um, uh, I'm a, I talk the talk of technology and globalization, but I do not walk the walk. And the book celebrates everything that is old and slow. It celebrates all the things you cannot download, all the things you have to upload the old-fashioned way, one human being to another. My last question, since I'm in the book business, which is an industry that itself has been dislocated, shaped, dislocated <laughs> yeah. and reshaped by the technological age, um, Although in many ways it's still going strong. Yeah. But I just wonder what you envision for the future when it comes to the book business, when it comes to publishing, distribution, you're an author. Um... Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I sell probably as many e-books now as I do hardcovers. I don't know what the exact proportion is, but it's a lot and growing all the time. But I'm a huge uh, bull on independent bookstores uh, like Explore uh, because I think people really crave community um, and they really um, like to be with other people. We are social animals. They don't just want to sit home uh, staring at a blinking computer with a half-eaten pizza box open. Um, and so I, I think that um, stores that can not just sell books, but can sell experiences, the experience of meeting with authors, the experience of discussing books, uh, and, and the experience of bringing people together in, in all kinds of ways, I think they're going to have a great future in the age of acceleration. Thomas Friedman talking to Ellie Scott about his new book, Thank You for Being Late. Gina Murdoch is founder of the Aspen Yoga Society. She's well known around Aspen for launching the Murdoch Mind, Body and Spirit series at the Aspen Institute, bringing, among others, Deepak Chopra and Goldie Horn to talk about their work. Heather MacDonald of the Aspen Chapel met her and asked her what inspires her work. 
Well, uh, both the organizations that I started in Aspen, the Aspen Yoga Society and the Aspen City of Wellbeing, have been inspired by my own personal practice and the journey that I've been on to discover my own true self. And so for me, that did start with yoga and the yoga practice, the asana practice, the actual physical movements. I've always been uh, athletic and and active, and I found myself... uh, as a reporter sitting on a, at a desk quite a bit, you may relate, you know, doing some marketing and things like that. And what's uh, our society seems like it's geared more and more towards productivity and people sitting in positions for a long period of time and doing tasks that are, uh, you know, important for society, but that are not necessarily good for our health uh, physically. I think uh, Dr. Agus, who's a, a good friend of mine, he talks about sitting as the new smoking. And so there I was um, around 2007, I was sitting in my desk as a reporter and I would often get this feeling of just agitation and just like basically I was freaking out. I felt my body was closing down on me and I was young at that time. I was in my 20s. Um, Not too long after having some of those feelings at my desk job that I'd had for quite some time, I was in a car accident, a pretty bad car accident where I had a concussion. And I wasn't able to focus anymore on my desk job. I really just could not sit there. I couldn't look at the screen. It gave me headaches. And so I really dedicated to a yoga practice at that time. I had done yoga before for several years, but it kind of would come and go. And I... uh, I got really inspired by the way that the yoga practice was healing my body. And I got really like almost evangelical about it. And I'm sure you've seen and met some of these people. They get into yoga or meditation and it's like they have to tell the world. Well, that was me. I basically felt myself go from a, uh, a very limited state of being in mind and body to a really expansive space in, through the practice. And so I quit my job and I went to become a yoga teacher in t- 2007. And uh, my journey took me through Bikram yoga, which is a certain style of yoga. That was my sort of gateway drug, I like to call it. And from Bikram, I started exploring different styles of yoga and, you know, just super in love with the practice, the way it made me feel, the way that my heart would sort of sing the connectivity of the group of people that would practice together. I mean, what what I came to understand was this awareness of we are one. Right. And so the Yoga Society kind of spawned out of that story where I got so passionate about the practice. I wanted to create an organization that was about bringing all yogis together for the greater good. And so I did that in 2010. I started working with uh, the Aspen Institute a little bit, bringing some body element into their mind, body, spirit stuff and uh, convening events and different things in Aspen with all the different yoga studios and all the different styles of yoga and all the different types of yoga teachers. So that's been a really fun uh, endeavor that's just served as an expression of the passion that I have for the practice. With the Aspen City of Wellbeing, would you say that that was an evolution from the Aspen Yoga Society? Yeah, I mean, uh, through the years with the yoga, my um, my own interests have broadened in the sort of health and well-being arena. I spend a lot of time with Deepak Chopra in the last several years. I'm on his board. And through the Chopra Foundation, we do a lot of um, scientific research into the effectiveness of yoga and meditation on your overall health. And even more so, sort of the... Um, the awareness and the scientific data that backs up that you are really uh, 
90% if not more in charge of your own health. Like there's environmental stuff, there's genetics, but really the way that, that, that you look at the world and the way that you take care of your body and the way that you surround yourself with certain people and things, that's what's going to make you happy and healthy. And so knowing that from, from science and then from my own experience, I, uh, I got really inspired to just broaden this idea of yoga, bringing yoga to the world and being in a... I don't really like to use the word evangelical, but we are in a church right now, so it's kind of coming through. But this idea of being sort of evangelical about health and wellness and inspiring people and empowering people to understand that, that, that knowledge that, that it's, it's up to you how, you how you show up in your mind, your body, and your spirit. Absolutely. Um, and what is your hope or your dream for the effect that you will have on people and communities touched by your two organizations? Well, the dream, I think success for me with both of them, and I see the Yoga Society kind of um, fitting under the city of well-being uh, at this time, would be that you would actually come into Aspen per se. Like, we want this movement to be a ripple where we started Aspen and we create this sort of vibe here where they, when you come to Aspen that it feels different, that there's a sense of well-being in every area of society from the government, the businesses, the individuals, the nonprofits, and just people are more connected for one. So um, we would have a much more connected community. People would be healthy and well, meaning that um, the substance abuse rates that we have that are really, really high here and the mental health issues that we have here that are fairly dramatic nationwide uh, would be reduced and that we would have an overall sense of well-being. I have a, a vision, and this was one of the little aha moments when I started this organization a couple years ago, where I had seen a headline that said Aspen is number one party town, you know, again for the tenth year in a row. Or, you know, that's an exaggeration, but you know, you ha we have this 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 reputation in Aspen as a party town, and I love to party sometimes. I mean, I love to have fun, but um, the the vision that I had would be a headline that says Aspen is the global hub of well-being in the world, and that we can help make that happen by focusing on it with our intention and our desire here. And do you have things in place where we can measure the success of that? We do. We, um, we're working with um, several different kind of indices of well-being. And so uh, eventually we will have a measurement system. Right now, because we're sort of in the startup mode, we don't have that baseline measurement yet. What we've been doing is gathering all sorts of existing data to understand what the problems are. And, you know, the problems are significant and they're not different than a lot of other places. But then um, once we have our more funding in place and things like that, we'll administer surveys and then we will measure again in, in years come. And we'll hope to see a move in that needle where Aspen actually does become legitimately a city of well-being, not just a marketing campaign or a, a little slogan, which, uh, you right. know, is is fine, but that's not my intention. I really want to shift the needle on people's health and well-being. And um, do you think your efforts are being received with open arms, or are you facing obstacles? Uh, most of the time, people get really jazzed about the idea. Um, and, and what I like to say is what you focus on grows. So uh, if we focus on the problems we have, traffic, parking, depression, mental health, suicide, substance abuse, I feel like in some ways you fuel that. So my uh, intention really is shifting the, um, the lens that we're looking through. Let's look at it through well-being and where we want to go instead of where right. we don't want to be. And everybody that we've talked to and we've been coalition building for two years now, uh, talking with all the uh, stakeholder groups. Um, and 
and it's always really well received. I think the, the, the obstacles that we face is really just the monumental scale of doing something, even in a small town like this. You know, we have so many agencies we want to work with and so many, um, you know, just government organizations and uh, businesses that just getting the word out and kind of keeping the momentum rolling and being focused. That's wonderful. Um, and do you have any immediate plans for the future? Well, you know, my plans are to stick with uh, the practices that I know that serve me so that I can really walk the talk. And for me, that really is a daily practice of yoga and meditation, being mindful and being kind to my neighbors. And so to me, that's the easiest thing you can do. And it's something that's obviously really important for me as the founder of these organizations and the head cheerleader and biggest advocate. So that's my plan. Gina Murdoch talking to Heather MacDonald. In this podcast, we've looked at ideas around slowing down and organisations that help us do that. But what about the practice that we can do ourselves? Cynthia Brogeau is the founder of the Aspen Wisdom School and has written many books about the practice of meditation and contemplation. She came into Aspen to give a couple of workshops at the Aspen Chapel around her new book, The Heart of Centering Prayer. Laurel Cato began by asking her about one of the key ideas in her book, the moment of stopping, the arrival point, or as she puts it, non-dualism. Well, non-dualism is one of those words that so, uh, has become so vague and amorphous like the soul that it would almost be more useful if it wasn't in the vocabulary. And I'd say there's a range of meanings at the simplest side of the, the equation. It, it simply implies an, a capacity to think beyond opposites, to hold the tension of opposites, to not fall immediately into black and white, simplistic, judgmental uh, thinking, but to know that to be comfortable with, with process, with paradox, with messiness, with the gradual unfolding of everything. And so it moves on up and on the sort of uh, most arcane and spiritual ends, it's the capacity to see the world from oneness so that the whole system by which perception takes place in you doesn't have to split the playing field into subject and object, inside and outside, black, white, me, them, but can see sort of the way a symphonic director hears when he hears the whole symphony at once not individual lines, but, but the wholeness. So it's a, it really is a capacity of the brain entrained with the heart to make sense of re- reality holographically rather than linearly and discursively. And definitions unfold along that continuum. We were also struck yesterday, I think, by the emphasis of the new book. We are familiar, of course, with your 2002 Centering Prayer book. Um, It was an introduction to this path of centering prayer and reclaiming the tradition of centering prayer out of the Christian strain. We had always come to view it as a a personal path, a personal journey of self-transformation. But what struck us all yesterday was the message that not only is this a personal journey, a personal uh, path to spiritual transformation, but it's also something we must do for the planet. Yeah. Could you speak a bit more about that? Yeah. I think that, that Centering Prayer, the, the whole point of the new book is that 
in a way that's happened that's built right into the mechanism, the, the methodology of centering prayer. Uh, it helps to develop the physiological foundation to run the non-dual consciousness program. In other words, to see the world from oneness. Uh, and it does so because in the practice, the two emphases are, first of all, on objectless awareness. In other words, not letting your attention run out to this thought or this thought or this thought, but bringing it back so you can hold attention in a deep and more collected reservoir, which is alive enough and vibrant enough, particularly when you bring it into the heart, which Centering Prayer also helps us to do. That helps to, to allow us to physiologically run that program of non-dualism as a shift in operating system, as I've said before. And uh, not I alone, but many, many of the spiritual teachers today, and I'm, I'm in conversation with at least half a dozen of them, are seeing it in much the same way, that what looks like catastrophe and reversal and the disruption of consciousness at one level on our planet is really a necessary tag team and backstep and, and, and moving forward adjustment in a forward movement of consciousness. And that where the planet is uh, irreversibly headed is towards a significant number of people that can actually begin to see the world from that non-dual perspective, which means they behave in the world out of uh, bodhisattva consciousness, out of compassion, out of love, out of a sense of respect and, and mutual interdependent arising with the whole, with the plants, with the animals, with the other nations. That comes from a different operating system. And so it becomes really the most, the most powerful thing we can do to help our planet the most powerful thing we can do to help our country in this time of transition and dualism is to continue to work with the programs that allow a significant new critical mass of people to see the world from generally, uh, from a genuinely authentic and uh, an integral non-dual viewpoint. I'd like to bring um, our friend Teilhard de Chardin into the conversation, as you did today in your message uh, here at the Aspen Chapel. What does a relatively obscure Catholic priest exiled into communist China, a working paleontologist, add to this whole discussion of non-dualism and this intractable progression of consciousness over the long arc of time? Well, he adds that second part, most importantly, that he, you know, what makes him interesting is he was both a first-rate scientist and a Christian mystic. He died in 1955, so his, his sphere of operation was the early 20th century. But he was the first person to try to re-situate the Christian story within the whole 14 billion year span of the universe story rather than just keeping it narrowly confined with Adam and Eve. And, uh, and what he saw as a, as a paleontologist was that, that over this 14 billion years, what you see is that evolution has a direction, and that he calls it a rising tide of consciousness, which is irreversible. And even though there are setbacks, and sometimes long ones, like the Ice Age for 10,000 years, that still, when you look at it in deep time, you have reason to see that it's being propelled and drawn along a trajectory whose ultimate goal is the full revelation of the capacities of consciousness uh, in love, in compassion, 
uh, in wisdom and forbearance. And we're moving along that journey with, with, with Christ. And the Christian mystery is a, in some sense a midpoint and then as a kind of spur and a goad that's pulling it forward. So it's a beautiful roadmap for, for, for people that like evolution. It's a beautiful roadmap for Christians that want to get Jesus out of a little church box and feel the, the wingspan, the cosmic and mystical wingspan of the, of the faith. And you're suggesting that this kind of energy, that this kind of uh, both individual and collective spiritual journey has its own power. Oh, yes. This is not a, uh, a unilateral disarmament. This is not a this too shall pass. This is not a Pollyanna form of denial. But it has its own power to shape and continue that evolutionary path. Oh, ex- yes. What Teilhard brings to the whole puzzle is the... is is a law that, that he calls the complexification consciousness law. Big words, but what it means essentially is that every evolutionary leap that we've seen in the planet has come part and parcel with and actually been made possible by a, a more intricate and organic physical arrangement. Like subnuclear particles get together to form an atom, and atoms get together and form a molecule. Molecules get together and give birth to a cell. And, and cells, many people get together and give birth to a person. So he says that the next evolutionary leap is going to be made possible as people get together and give birth organically to a new mystical body of humanity, which will then be able to bear forth a consciousness which has more candle power, more magnitude, than even the most enlightened guru working alone. So the idea that we coalesce and that we form this new body together, bringing our individual aspirations and yearning and consciousness and achievement to form something that doesn't have a shape yet because it's never happened. But when it comes into being, uh, then all of a sudden we haven't begun to see what consciousness will look like. So that's very much the message for those who are working on a path of evolutionary consciousness. Let's get together. Let's pool our energies, let's pool our attention, our heart, our wisdom, our beauty, and see what kind of a vessel we can make for divine wisdom to inhabit it. And this is, you suggest, a foundation for what you call deep Deep hope. hope. That's deep hope. Cynthia Bourgeau talking to Laurel Cato about the effect of personal practice on collective consciousness and her new book, The Heart of Centering Prayer. Our aim in this podcast is to give you a chance to reflect on your life, to think about what's going on on the inside as our outside rushes around getting things done. We'd love to know what you think of it. Please do get in touch and let us know. Also with any ideas that you have for people we could talk to or topics we can cover. To get in touch, just email me, Nicholas Vesey. The email address is nicholas, that's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, at aspenchapel.org. That's nicholas at aspenchapel.org. Thank you for listening. The Aspen Mind, Body, and Spirit podcast was brought to you by the Aspen Chapel and Explore Booksellers of East Main Street, Aspen, Colorado.